0: Hello, hello, and hello, everybody. Welcome back for another episode If Not Now When. Oh my goodness, in this new year edition, I am so beyond excited to have our incredible guest today. We got Amos Swazfarb on the show with us. Amos, oh my God, he wears a thousand hats. First and foremost, he's a managing director at Techstars, one of the leading CS writers in the world, supporting startups to grow and scale their business. He's also the author of the best-selling book, Drum Rolls, Levers, and Sell More Faster. Wow! Uh, not only he's a big man in the startup world, super, super awesome, in Austin and nationally, with his own success in the startup, uh, another fun fact about him is Amos loves seeking adventure and pushing limits. Uh, he was passionate about adventure racing and ran second in the nation twice and 20th in the world after competing in 2001 ECHO Challenge. Wow, what a fascinating journey, Amos. I am so excited. And thank you so much, Amos, for joining us. And welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me very excited to be here. And oh my gosh, the eco challenge was almost 20 years ago, which is mind blowing to me. Um, so I think that officially makes me a has been that's okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's a beautiful journey. With that, it was a little bit more. Yeah. How does all the magic begin?
1: How does all the magic begin? Is that what you said?
0: Yes. you've done a lot. Wow.
1: Yeah, well th- thank you. Uh, that's a good question i i've I've often reflected back because i' i I've really enjoyed life. I don't know what else to say other than that. I think it's been a I've, I've had a really incredible journey so far, mm-hmm. and um, I, I often think like, how the heck did I get here? I'm a, you know, I was a poor kid in the Bronx when I, you know, or you know, a kid in the Bronx from a poor family when I was growing up, and
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: I don't know how I ended up. I do know how I ended up in Austin, but it it, it was a long circuitous uh, journey to to get here, and a very very fun one. And I think, you know, when I reflect back, probably, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the, the the couple of biggest things that were always on my mind, or maybe the number one thing that got me here is. I, I largely just trusted my gut and intuition and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, to something that you said earlier, which is that I, I, I don't consider myself a very big risk taker, but I think a lot of other people do when, when you look at the things that I've done, I'm pretty calculated in the things that I do, but I have Mm -hmm. certainly, um, I've certainly followed my own path to, to be wherever I am today. In fact, uh,
0: Incredible.
1: I have long sleeves on today because it's 25 degrees here or something. But um, I have a tattoo on this arm, which was uh, an homage to my mother, uh, who used to read to me the the road less traveled by Robert Frost um, all the time when I was a kid. And and she probably probably had did more good than harm, uh, depending on how you want to look at it. But the the you know the takeaway for me always and I remember she started reading it to me when I was probably five or six years old was uh, anybody can go down the beaten path but the real adventure is when you don't take the beaten path and um, I think it has meant a lot of different things to me over the years uh, but it has always meant something to me to to either intentionally or unintentionally. Um, Seek adventure, seek new things, seek learning. Um, mm-hmm. So, the me.
0: adventure seeking from the book, that's beautiful. Yeah. So, Amos, tell us how does it feel like growing up in Bronx, New York? Like you mentioned, you were you know not coming from the fancy family with all the things ready. How do you, from that moment to here?
1: It's interesting. I, I think now more than anything, I romanticize about the fact that, that you know, of, of where my roots are from. But I'm almost, you know, I'm, I'm 48 years old. It I haven't lived there. I haven't even lived on the East Coast since I was 18. So it's been 30 years since I've even been on the East Coast. I did most of my schooling in, in North Jersey, uh, which was mm-hmm. coincidentally only about four miles from where I was born in the Bronx. Um, but those days are, are long gone. I, I, you know, the, the journey, I think, started with, um, I don't think I would have said this when I was 18 or 20 or even 30, maybe, but I, when I reflect back, I think I always felt restless. Like there was, there was, there was more on the frontier to Mm. be discovered. And so, you know, it did a few things where, you know, I think for many people probably seems obvious that you go off to college and you probably do that somewhere outside of your home state, unless you're from Austin, in which case you go to UT because it's awesome. And, it, you know, Austin and UT are both Austin. Awesome. But most, I yep. think most people don't do that. Well, for me, um, you know, my, I was at both of my parents' college graduations. I was five at my dad's and I was 16 at my mom's. So it was a little bit novel to, to wow. and they, you know, they, they both like, they both went to night school, so they were home. It was a little bit novel for me to go somewhere but that was i think for me the you know the first thing which is being the first member of my family not to go to college but to go and leave to literally leave home i didn't go very mm-hmm. far but i went you know three hours away to university of massachusetts and i went a little begrudgingly it wasn't really the path that i thought i wanted to be on in retrospect oh my gosh i'm so glad i went i have lifelong friends great experience you know i think when i you know the the, the trickles of things that have happened To me, since um, a lot of it is rooted all over my youth, like for most people, but a lot of it happened, um, you know, certainly because I went to UMass versus some somewhere else. Um, And so, um, you know, I think that that's what took me out of New Jersey at age of 18, right? I went to college, went to UMass and I discovered a a few things when I was, when I was there. one of the things that I discovered there was a love for rock climbing, um, which took me out West, uh, in 1993 for a year. And then in 1995, and I never looked back after that. And then the other thing that I discovered was, um, that, uh, uh, an affection for, for, for travel. And that might seem, you know, for some listening, like it's silly, but, I, just as an example, my, my parents have left the country once in their life for their honeymoon when they were, you know, this was in 1969. They, they've never left the country since. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, for them they they visited me in California and they visited me in Austin, but they don't, they're not huge travelers outside of going to the beach in New Jersey, right? That's the generation and the culture that they grew up in. And so I think discovering those two things in college was like, oh, there's more out there. Then mm-hmm. this little town I grew up in in North Jersey um, just was opened up my horizon, and so that brought me to the West Coast. That and that that and my love for rock climbing brought me to you know to Yosemite and to rock climbing, and that was you know I bring that up because that was really in a lot of ways my foray into um, the startup world and this this, mm-hmm. you know, this professional landscape that I've been involved in for the better part of 25 years. And that's because the the, the first company that I was a part of the first startup, um, didn't, they didn't define themselves as a startup. If it, I shouldn't even say they, it was he, it was one guy, in his garage selling rock climbing gear from a paper catalog, because it was mm-hmm. really in the early, early days of the internet. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he hired me literally to do one thing, which was to pack boxes for the orders that came in. So I would wake up early, I'd go, I'd pack boxes for the, the previous day's orders, and then I'd go climb in the afternoon, and that was my life. And at some point in the first few months, things started to pick up for him. And we, we, two things happened. One is he asked me to start um, picking up the phone and doing sales and his inbound sales, not outbound, right? So I wasn't calling people, but people were calling into us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other thing that happened was um, I had a friend that I grew up with that I shared what I was doing, and she had uh, this idea that we should take this catalog and we should put it on the internet and we should sell things on the internet. And to anyone listening, it's probably like a, yeah, of course you would do that. but in 1997, that was mm-hmm. a very novel idea. E-commerce mm-hmm. was't a term at the time and i don't believe we pioneered e-commerce but we were certainly one of the early early e-commerce companies and Mm -hmm. uh, i left before this happened but shoreline mountain products ended up getting sold to uh, mountain gear which is a retailer out of the northwest and Mm -hmm. that was my foray into the startup world and what could happen when you have a passion and a desire to change the world in some way and i use those world those words very intentionally because i don't believe tom shore's changed the world but his view of the world that he was trying to change
2: mm-hmm. was
1: i want to do a better job delivering high quality mat- uh, rock climbing products to people who are looking for rock climbing products that was it that was his the, the world he wanted to change and so that with that is his vision it made sense to experiment with things like bringing that online to selling sell it. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a few reasons I bring that up. One is because it was really a, a huge education for me in how to build a meaningful product that, that can be long lasting, right? Like even though the brand of shoreline mountain products doesn't exist anymore, the flavor of what he did, what he created is now prevalent all over the place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's only in reflecting back that I can do this, but I take that and other pieces from some early things in my career, which is how um you know Trevor and I came up with the concept of putting the the framework around levers together. It all starts with a vision of how you believe you're going to change the world and your desire to do so and your passion um, and I an obsession in, in in doing doing so
0: I love that. Talk about passion and obsession. Um, Amos, I'm curious, do you always know your passion and your obsession or does it involve a longer year?
1: I think at this point in my life, I can identify it much quicker consciously than I could have at other points in my life. I think at other points in my life, I would find myself in the midst of something and then realized that I was obsessed. Um, and 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 you know I, Brad Feld I'm I'm going to call him out for a second he he uses these words very differently um, passion and obsession and I really appreciate the way that he thinks about it it's one thing to be passionate about idea an idea but but passion is a passive word but when you're obsessed with something you're in the middle of it and you're doing it and you can't stop doing it and mm. so one of the things he says and I I actually believe and I'm trying to adopt myself is looking for entrepreneurs that are obsessed mm-hmm. it's one thing to be passionate it's another thing to be obsessed with the idea
0: i love that flavor wow i never thought about passion is a passive term obsessed it's like i'm actively seeking it which is beautiful that i yeah. love it so now emma's we know how do you start to start our world now i'm curious what What fascinates you about startup? Why do you stay? Because after the first venture, right, you go on to another, you know, five, six others. Like what made you remain in the startup world?
1: Yeah, you know, and I've sworn it off after almost every single time, Mm -hmm. Uh, with the exception of Shoreline Mountain Products, which I don't think I did. It took me like probably six or seven or eight years to realize like what I was a part of. It just was Mm -hmm. a thing at the time. Um, I've sworn it off every, almost every time, because I think being a founder, being an entrepreneur, starting a company, being in an early stage company, it's a really hard and painful journey. And it's, it's often very romanticized. Mm -hmm. Um, and really the romance doesn't happen until you're out of it for a couple of years and it's over whether you won or lost. Which is, you know, going back to, you know, sort of what we were just talking about, passionate obsession. And I think the reason that I keep finding myself in it over and over again is because I get obsessed with an idea or a concept or sometimes just working with a group of people that have a common goal. Mm
2: -hmm. But
1: it's that obsession where I find myself in the middle of something, you know, maybe in the middle a month in or six months in or two years in. But all of a sudden I'm like, oh, so this just happened again. Uh, um, And the only time that I've ever been intentional about it, I failed, which was the very last company that I tried to start um, before uh, I joined Techstars, Mm
2: -hmm. which
1: was jealous. Um, It's the only time I failed. I said, "Okay, I've done this a bunch before. I must know what I'm doing. Here are some people. Let's come up with an idea and let's go do it. So for some people that might work for me, that doesn't work. And it's Why? again, I wasn't, I wasn't really trusting my gut. I was trying to rationalize myself into doing something because I felt like a, 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 a you know, an expert, which I actually don't know that there's such a thing as an expert in startups because everyone is completely new and different from the, the last one. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that, you know, that, that's really it. And I think that the other thing that I've learned over the, the last, well, really probably almost 20 years at this point, 18 years is I don't function well, or at least when I was younger, I didn't function well in a big company. I have mm. too, um, too much energy. My opinions are really strong. Um, not always right. And I'm okay with that, but they're really strong. Um, mm. I, I can sometimes in larger groups come off a little abrasive when really it's just my obsession coming out. Um and so historically, when I have found myself in a bigger company, like when Hot Jobs got acquired by Yahoo, when when.com mm. got acquired by Rick Donnelly, when uh Black Locust got acquired by Home Depot, I just don't function well. I I, mm. I you know I get almost like itchy. Um and so by the time Black Locust came around and Home Depot bought us, they gave me an option to to stay. And I was like, yeah, no, no it's not not my not my world. And You know, if I'm being really transparent, uh, you're catching me on a day where I'll be exceptionally transparent. Like, you know, I think Techstars is is an interesting place because we're going from startup and we're going through those similar growing pains, but I'm also in a very different place in my life now with a family.
0: So beautiful. Wow, there's so much impact here. And, you know, Amos, I really wanted to... um... Make sure I hear you correctly. You said you have so much successes, but one last start that you did was a quote unquote failure, which I really don't believe failure. Um, you said it's only because you thought you have all the right elements, but you did not listen to your own gut. Can you elaborate more about that?
1: I'll try to describe it in the simplest way possible. And I've reflected on it a lot. And I think it's, you know, it's not complex from a perspective of understanding, but there's just so many moving parts. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that, that that Joust came about was we had just sold Black Locus, Um and I thought about taking a bunch of time off and I didn't know what I was going to do next. I, I really had no idea. I didn't. It, it kind of happened very suddenly. And I was approached by a friend of mine who had this idea to start a, a company called Joust, which was essentially um, a virtual betting app on anything. So different than like a fan duel or a draft Kings. It was, you could bet on anything, mm-hmm. virtual currency and rational and rationally. It made sense that he and myself and our third co-founder, John Cristiano came together to do this because John had a, a pretty good gaming background and a great design background. Um, Tim is a is uh, an avid uh, gambler, not in the bad sense, or at least I don't believe so, where he's, you know, gambling his house away, but he plays a lot of poker and understands that world Mm -hmm. really well. And he's been a successful CEO a couple of times. Um, Mm -hmm. John was also a successful entrepreneur. I've had, you know, a bunch of, um, Mm -hmm. you know, at that point experience and success. And it made sense that the three of us together could figure something out. Mm -hmm. And, I resisted it uh, for a couple of reasons with Tim in the first few months when he was courting me. One was that it was really a B2C company and that's not where my core experience lies on the sales front, which is what he really wanted me for, um, Mm -hmm. sales and fundraising. And um, so in his thought was, and the way that we approached it was, well, this could be a hybrid between B2B and B2C reflecting back seven years later, like I would, I I do tell all the companies in my portfolio, don't ever do that. (laughs) I don't think it works. It's you're, you're competing with yourself. Um, so there was, there was that there was the, you know, from a, a passion and obsession perspective, I didn't really care about the thing that we were doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't gamble. I don't bet. Mm -hmm. I'm not a gamer. Mm
2: -hmm. I don't
1: know. consumer very, very well. Mm -hmm. Um, I shouldn't say that. I know consumer well, but I know it strategically, not necessarily tactically. So I'm not a great executor on the consumer side. Mm-hmm. And um, I really liked Tim as a friend, and and we're mountain bike buddies. Uh, I didn't know John, um, but you know, I rationalized, and Tim helped me rationalize into why this would work. My mm-hmm. gut was telling me all along that something was off. And you know, we mm-hmm. went at it for years. We raised you know a few million dollars. Um, we, and I was able to bring in some really great early customers in ESPN and Fox and MTV, but we didn't have a sustainable product. And we really, we kind of, we did a lot of things wrong. I mean, like retrospectively, you know, the list of Mm -hmm. things we did wrong was, was massive. Um, but at the end of the day, what it came down to was when things really, 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 really got tough. I wasn't mm. obsessed enough with the problem to be able to mm-hmm. solve all the, the, the little or big problems that were that were popping up along the way, and I mm. think John was in the same camp. Interestingly mm. enough, Tim the company never actually shut down. Tim continues to try to do something with it, and uh, mm. I'm glad that he is, and maybe he'll be successful one day. Still, still mm-hmm. working on. it. Mm.
0: So, what is the biggest takeaway, you know, from your perspective that our you know founders can learn from that?
1: I would say for me and it may be different for others although I would argue it's probably not for most for mm-hmm. me it is being really honest with yourself about mm-hmm. how you feel about the thing you're doing versus the idea of being a founder and it's one of the things with my work at Techstars that I come in in contact with a lot and I'm wrong sometimes on this but I really try to screen for which mm-hmm. is is the is the founder obsessed with being a founder or are they are they obsessed with the, the thing that they're trying to accomplish and if it's the former they're mm-hmm. they're not a fit for me they still might be successful and they may be a fit for another tech stars program or for some mm-hmm. other investors but for me they're not a fit if they are completely obsessed with with the with the thing that they're trying to solve mm-hmm. um, m- much more in line with how I think about the world because if they can become <laughs> obsessed, there's much more likelihood that I can be obsessed with them because I'll feed off of their, their passion. Mm.
0: Yes. Wow, you know, Emma. first of all, thank you so much for being so honest and transparent sharing my experience. And I really, really love the distinction you just said about are you obsessing with being a founder because it sounds so sexy and rainbow and sunshine because it's going awesome, of course. Or are you actually obsessing with the idea, with a the, with the, with the product, with a solution, which is I think it makes such a huge differences, and therefore, when I'm thinking about the lever, the three W, I was like, "Wow, that makes so much sense!" Because when I read the book, I was like, "This is mind blowing. How can I not think about this before?" So, can you tell us a little bit more about that and how you, you know, your perspective about really, you know, running a successful business and how's that all fitting together with obsession and three W and more?
1: Well, I, yeah, thanks. I will. And I'll, I'll add to that, too, something you said earlier and I agree with, which is there really aren't any failures. And, you know, when I call Joust a failure, I, I say that very intentionally because I want founders that are listening to be comfortable with the fact that not everything works out regardless of how much experience you've had, right? Like this company was not successful while I was there. It's still not successful, but it wasn't successful I was while I was there. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I agree it was not a failure. And I say that as sort of a way to lead into your question, the, the book levers came from a lot of different places. And one of the things that really helped it all come together and separate from that, but, but also some of the work I do at tech stars with founders was, was the experiences of the joust, like all the things that I thought we knew after 20 mm-hmm. years of being successful at you know, five different companies to that point and still, mm-hmm. you know, screwing up <laughs> and, and, and why, right. And, and looking back and saying, what were the things that we could have done differently?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we may, you know, just, I'll, I'll get into the root of your question, but had we gone through the leverage process at Joust, we still may have not been successful, but I am positive. We would have either figured that out much faster and much cheaper Mm-hmm. And I also think we would have been much, set up much better to have the potential to be successful in some way versus mm-hmm. our pie in the sky idea, which was way too, mm-hmm. way too broad and too, too vast. I mean, I can tell you like specifically, this is like the the the, the day that Trevor and I decided to write levers and ha- how it came about. And it's hard to describe everything that led up to it. A lot of it is the stuff we've talked about to this point. Mm-hmm. But the, the day, and I, I, Trevor and I remember this day pretty similarly, we were sitting in the Techstars office um, and the I Sell More Faster was was out It had already been a bestseller. I said I'd never write another book again, not because it wasn't a great experience. It just, it wasn't a thing on my bucket list. I did it. So great. Um, that was a whole different story of how that came about, but it was kind of an accident. And uh, I was Trevor, and I were reflecting on um, all of the things that both of us had done over all of our careers, the things that had made us successful, the things um, that hadn't worked. Um, what were the similarities and differences? And we'd already been using every component of the mm-hmm. leverus framework even before TechStars separately. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, and and in fact, W3 was born out of uh, my work at business.com and revenue formula is something that came out of eBay, right? So they're not even, they're they're old concepts. And what Trevor and I were talking about, and we had already started to take our work and and implement it inside of Techstars for the benefit of our founders, and we saw it starting to work. And the the conversation we had was like, you know, is there a way for us to make a a bigger impact on more founders um, Mm -hmm. by... Presenting this work that we do to the rest of the world in a really easy and digestible format, mm-hmm. and um, I had the idea of I said, Look, "Why don't we write a write, write a book together?" And he and he's written a, a couple of books as a ghostwriter before, and he's edited a whole bunch of books. And we both sort of were like, "Well, it's a lot of work. Don't know that we want to go out it alone, but better if we're together." How do we make this even more valuable? And so we thought, okay, we already work with Cody Sims. On this mm-hmm. part of the framework because he's awesome. We already work with Troy Hennikoff on this part of the framework. And you know, Troy is, I would say, certainly nationally renowned, but world renowned for his ability to teach and understand financial modeling. And they're friends of ours. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what if we could get these guys to work with us on this, you know, project and we all went at it together? You and mm-hmm. I will take on the bulk of the actual formation production of the book, and they can mm-hmm. write the chapters that are relevant to them. Mm-hmm. um and so i you know I called them both up through the idea at them they were both like emphatically yes i think you know one <laughs> an easy way for them to be authors on a book where they really just have to write a little section on the thing that they already know really well and i think there's an mm-hmm. important aspect here for me on both of the books um and, but it came together really really fast from a conceptual perspective once mm-hmm. we all agreed we all went sit out and wrote our chapters and because and this is the, the one of the big learnings was because this is stuff that we'd all been doing for 20 years each, writing a chapter was not hard, right? I sat down and wrote you know, each one of my chapters in about an hour and a half. Doesn't mean that the editing was hours on top of that, but, and it was the same thing with Somewhere Faster. So, so here's the note on that, right? Like people asked me when, when Somewhere Faster came out, similar, like, hey, you know, how long did it take you to write this book? And my answer was always like, well, it depends on what you mean. If you mean how long did I sit down at a keyboard and actually write it, well, every chapter took me about six hours and there were six chapters in the book. That was it. Mm-hmm. Lots of editing beyond that, but like the actual like version one, but the part mm-hmm. that, that was, I think more relevant is it's 20 years of experience that was able, made me able to be able to do that. And mm-hmm. so when you think about, you know, an author who want, who is an author, someone who is literally an author and that's their job and they want to go tackle you know, uh, a, a new project, right? Think of Malcolm Goldwell, Gal- right? Like he wants to go mm-hmm. write another book. He's going out and he's doing maybe a couple of years of research mm-hmm. in order to sit down and write on that thing. Our version of that was 20 years of hands-on experience. So I don't even know that I have another book in me. I don't know what I would what, what I would write about. So I don't know. Does that answer your question? I feel like I ran. Yeah. Through.
0: Wow. Beautiful. I love that. So everybody, if you're listening, it's now still the time to get the book, which is Fascinating! Oh my goodness, twenty years of experience. I love that. Um, By the way, we just
1: you know, fell off the bestseller list, so help get us back on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, now is the best time, everybody. New year, new you. Get the book. You know, with that, Emers, I, uh, I would love to you know circle back with you. And know, this journey, you know, you have taken, on, which is just so fascinating. You know, you have you know taking so many different roles in multiple different success startups. You know, I'm curious. Um, what is your definition for success? And with that, do you think you are successful today?
1: I don't know. You got four hours to talk. Um, (laughs) I do. Yeah. My, my definition of success has changed over the last, well, a lot over the last couple of years, I used to really firmly think that, that success was a destination, and I, I still am. I'm a very goal-oriented person. And, and I realize very much, and I always have, that sometimes goals are actually waypoints to, to another goal. But I, mm-hmm. I've always looked at, well, if I reach this thing, I've been successful. And if I don't reach that thing, then I'm not successful. Uh, my definition has changed over the last couple of years as I've reflected for a lot of reasons. One is I've reflected on my life, and, for one thing. Two is I realized that Um, when I'm in that mindset, it's harder to smell the roses and the roses are actually what matter in in Mm. life to to me. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I I think my definition of success today is to be able to be uh, acutely aware of the things around you on Mm -hmm. the, while you're on the path to whatever it is Mm -hmm. you're trying to achieve, fully Mm -hmm. acknowledging that the thing you're trying to achieve may change or may not mm-hmm. be achievable, and if you can learn and ex- have great experiences along the way, then it's been a success. Mm-hmm. And so, um, when you ask me if I've been su- feel like I've been successful in my life, I would say I'm still very much on that journey. I feel like to date, I have lived a really fun life. I, I have I have done. I've done lots of really, really cool shit. Like most of the stuff I don't talk about, but when I think about some of the places I've been, some of the things that I've done, some of the experiences I've had, some of the people I've gotten to spend time with, mm-hmm. um, the, the only, my, my trepidation isn't around whether or not I have been or will be successful. It's, um, how do I continue to live a life that's as full going forward mm-hmm. as it has been to date? I think mm-hmm. what makes it even more challenging is when you're in the moment, like none of those things that I've experienced that I realize what a big deal I would think they were five, 10, 15, 20 years later. Right. It, it's often in retrospect. Mm-hmm. So how do you, how do you get more, how do I become more aware in a moment of like, wow, this is, this is, this moment is a really special, precious thing. Mm-hmm. Like, like enjoy it for what it is. Yeah. That's, that's So, so I think to date I've been successful and I hope that, Um, this is not the end of the journey, but just somewhere in the first third to half of it.
0: Yeah. Wow, I love that, Amos. You know, smell the roses. It's not just about the destination. And you know, you you mentioned that, you know, no pressure at You mentioned you've done a lot of cool things that, you know, people oftentimes don't know. I'm curious, what is one cool thing that, you know, you wish people know about you that you oftentimes um, people don't know? About you. Oh,
1: well, you've asked me two questions. What is one one thing that I think is cool, and whether or not other people know? I don't know that. Oh, I mean, wait, it's yes, true Yeah, I don't know that I really care if anyone knows <laughs> because they're my experiences. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think one experience I had. I had a lot of similar experiences like this, but but there's one particular experience. I lived in Yosemite for uh, on and off for a while in the mm-hmm. mid late nineties rock climbing and doing nothing else. And I have this friend from the East coast who was, he was someone I met later in life, but he was born in the Bronx, raised in the Bronx, lived in the Bronx. When I knew him, he lived in the Bronx and we, we spent some time working together in Manhattan a really, really short amount of time. And we bonded around rock climbing. He was 10 or 15 years older than me. Like Mm -hmm. in many ways, we had no business being friends, but yet we hit it off wonderfully. And I moved back to California it's Yosemite and he, he came out to visit and we went on an adventure on this one particular climb one day. It was, swear to remember, it was Northwest face of middle, middle cathedral. I think it was roughly a 22 pitch rock climb. I don't remember exactly, but that basically means 22 rope lengths. A rope is, you know, is called 150 feet. So it's 150 Times wow. 22. with roughly the elevation. It wasn't a particularly hard climb. In fact, the descent off the back is sometimes considered harder than the actual climb itself. But the the thing that I, I think about that moment a lot, and I he and I haven't talked in probably a decade for no reason, just you know life goes on. I think about that a lot because there are so many really cool things about that. It was like these two kids from the Bronx that found themselves in the mountains. Neither one of us had any business being there, given our upbringing. We were out in the middle of nowhere. We were on this rock face. I think we started at four o'clock in the morning. We finished at six o'clock at night. It was such an adventure. We didn't see another single person all day. Had something happened to us, we would have been on our own to rescue ourselves. And I I, I truly had a lot of experiences like that. But for some reason, this particular one, I think it was because it was with him, that has always... Been special to me because I don't think he's ever to, to that point. He had never done anything like that, and I don't know that he ever, mm-hmm. had, or at least not in the years after that I was friends with him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it was just special to be on, a, you know, such a cool adventure and um, it, you know in such a special place like that.
0: Emma, what does rock climbing mean for you? When you're on that rock, what were you thinking?
1: Um, Well, there was, <laughs> it's a very different time in my life. And I was thinking about this this morning because I realized that it has been there was a time when I thought rock climbing was going to be the only important thing in the center part of my life. Mm -hmm. And I realized this morning that it has been more than 20 years since that's been the case, which is freaking mind blowing to me because I just like it still feels like yesterday. It really feels like yesterday. Mm -hmm. Um, But at that time, I felt like it defined who I wanted to be as a grown up and i was you know it's in my early 20s but i it it it, it was a it requires a lot of mental strength a lot of mental fortitude a lot of physical strength um it it you know the, to earlier in our conversation i think a lot of people in my life especially in my past life felt like i was taking really big risks on a relative scale to some of the people that I knew who were climbers at the time, I didn't feel like my risks were very big. They were all very calculated. Mm. I I rarely felt like I was going to die or felt really unsafe. Um, and I, and it you know it, it it helped me learn how to push my limits, how to overcome mm. some of my limits. Uh, mm. It taught me about my own boundaries um, and mm. a lot about myself. And you know when you're when the I lived a pretty nomadic life at that point and. At the time, it felt like a long time. In retrospect, it wasn't really that long, but I spent a lot of time by myself,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: which is uh, always really interesting. Um, and I was technically homeless because I didn't have a home, but I, I felt like I had a home. I had a tent, and I slept wherever I was. It was a ve- it was a really special time in, in my life, and I, I you know mm-hmm. I think I look at when I come up to adversity today. There's been a few different things, little things in life. And I'll use like last year's snowmageddon as an example. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, like all of these things were happening around us and there were people that were, you know, cold and without power and, you know, and, and for some of it, we were in that same boat and there was never for us, like there was never an ounce of nervousness. Like one, we had all of the gear, but more importantly than that, we had all of the know-how and how to survive. Like if, if it had gone for weeks, we would have been just fine. Uncomfortable Mm -hmm. maybe. Which is fine so i don't know i think when i think of startups it, it you know the 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 thought of grinding out on something it like nothing's going to be as dangerous or as painful as when you're two thousand feet up a cliff hanging off of one little tiny bolt that if it gave way you're dead right so oh my god things in person in a different kind of perspective
0: yeah wow that's why you're so chill and cool today Emma. wow and I'm curious, were you ever afraid? And so how do you oh, handle your fears?
1: I get, a, I get afraid. I still get afraid all the time. I, I, and I, when there's something that I've learned about the word fear that's really interesting, I use it pretty, pretty frequently and pretty um, freely because mm-hmm. I do get fear a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm really comfortable, comfortable being afraid and I'm really comfortable with where I believe my boundaries are. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think my challenge back in you know 20, 25 years ago was my ego got in the way of fear. So I would be afraid and I would my ego is like, okay, do I have to overcome this fear because there's people looking at me? No one really was looking at me, no don't give shit. Right. But like versus now, I'm like, well, I'm afraid. I don't really care what y'all think. Like I know what I who I am and what I've done in my life, and I'm afraid of this thing.
2: Mm-hmm. It,
1: it allows me to be more centered and say, okay, I'm afraid, but is my fear rational? What am Mm. I actually afraid of? And I Mm. learned all this from, from years back, right? When you're 2000 feet up a cliff and you're afraid, you have to say, what am I afraid of? Because the thing I'm afraid of is the thing I'm going to have to overcome. So you identify the thing and then you learn, can I overcome it or not? And most of the time, the answer has been yes. And sometimes the answer is no. And then, you know, because of that, I've learned to not be afraid to say, nope, I can't do that. Or I don't know how to do that. or I'm afraid to do that. And I walk the other direction.
0: Wow. I love that you just owned who you are, Amos. I felt like you are really, you know, you, you're unapologetically being who you are and you don't really care about what people perspective about you. That's wonderful. And it's incredible level of self-awareness along the way as well.
1: Yeah, thanks. And one thing that I want to say about fear, which I do think is, I have found really interesting and I, is that I, I do use the word fear pretty freely. And I have found that when other people hear it, it does a couple of things. It makes them nervous, and it puts many people into um, fixing mode. So, so if I say, for example, I'm afraid, someone mm-hmm. say, "Well, let me help you," and the answer for me is, is often like, "No, I, I I don't need help in this area," and I'm not afraid to ask for help when I need it. I'll be the first one to ask. But it puts it makes other people uncomfortable when you admit your fear, which I think is you know some, there's a lot of things that play there. Um, I haven't fully figured out how to reconcile that with someone when when they because mm-hmm. if someone wants to be helpful, I, I never want to like say I don't need your help. But then there's mm-hmm. that like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid, but like I'm okay being afraid. Like fear mm-hmm. is what helps me push my limits and grow and learn.
0: Mm-hmm. The way how I see it is maybe, you know, you say you're afraid of X, Y, Z, and that you are totally peace with it. You're like, I'm not gonna go make a cake. I'm afraid of making a cake, it's all good. But versus I feel like Maybe common people feel like fear is a challenge that I have not yet conquered. If I'm afraid of swimming, well, maybe it's a one when well, well, I will teach you how to swim, so you'll not be afraid anymore. So I think maybe there's a, I think it's all common self-awareness. I think it's about how, who you are, you know who you are. Therefore, you don't need to be, quote, unquote, um, not, I don't want to use the word fix, but you are perfectly fine the way you are. And I, I think that's a beautiful self-confidence and
1: well that's that's super kind of you and also i think that's a journey also i think i know a lot about myself but i also am i like literally every day i'm uncovering something new about myself and the whole your whole fear thing is like for me recognizing and identifying the fear and being able to get really specific on what it is like yes it allows me to realize that i can't overcome it or don't want to overcome it is probably a better way to say it or how to overcome it. And I think what I've learned is by identifying the fear, I have a much easier time of of getting past it because I can very specifically understand what it is. And if I can understand Mm -hmm. what it is, I can explore like what is the root of it. And sometimes that root is not natural or rational at all. And if that, especially if that root's not rational, it's much easier to overcome it.
0: How do you Uh, do that? If it's not rational, how do you do that? If I just feared about, Bicycles, no, for no reason.
1: Well, so, so your fear of bicycles is just one level, right? Like, what, are like, w- why? Right. I, so like the thing that I do, and I could do this in Techstars all the time. I, my friends like, hate it, but I do that. Like, I always, I'm always asking like, why my kids hate it. Like, why tell me why? Like, so why, why are you afraid of bicycles? Right? Like you say, well, I am, well, that's not an answer. Like, dig, like, it may take you a week or a month to figure it out, but like, go figure out why you're afraid of bicycles. Like, what's the thing? Do you know someone who got hit by a bicycle? Did you Mm. fall off your bicycle because of something? If you fell off your bicycle, what was the situation you were in? Like, how do you get to the specific and the root of what really, really, really is happening there so that you Mm. can understand and say, well, I'm afraid of bicycles because when I was seven years old, I was, I was biking along and someone pushed me off my bike. Well, Mm. are you, then is your fear that someone might push you off your bike? And if that's the case, is that a rational fear? And if so, how do you then like look at your surroundings differently so that if you find yourself in a situation situation where someone could do that, you can protect yourself better or recognize when you're not in that situation. So yes, I'm afraid of someone pushing me off my bike, but if I'm on the Velo way and there's nobody else there is it rational for me to be afraid of being on a bike.
0: Mm-hmm. Emma, you are so cool. Wow. I love that you're able to rationalize and see everything as, as clear as this and then make your own choice, which was wow. I love that. Uh, my last uh, question for you is, Um, uh, We talked about obsession a lot earlier. What is one obsession that you have today, and what impact you want to left on this planet?
1: <laughs> I have um, those are <laughs> those. So let me start with the second one. What impact do I want to leave on this planet? I, if I could leave any impact on this planet, I would feel really fortunate. I don't know. Um, that I, uh, that I, that I will have that, that my presence is so meaningful that I'm actually going to have an impact on this planet. But if I were, I would say it's in, um, giving my, my kids, my, my daughters, the ability to be the best versions of themselves, Mm -hmm. real true versions of themselves and that they can then impart that upon their families Mm -hmm. so that, there's a line of people who are at least working hard to be really great people. It doesn't mean that we always are, but like trying to be really great people. I, I think if that, that would, if I could do that, I would be really, if I, if I were able to look back in 200 years and actually be able to see it and I could have done that with my kids, that would be a huge win. Um, and then in terms of my current obsessions, I have recently, and by recently, I mean in the last, you know, 20 we'll call it 18 months because the first three months of the pandemic was everyone was scratching their head. But then when I was like, okay, mm-hmm. home, what am I going to do? That's different and fun. I've rediscovered my love, not just of listening to music, but playing music. Mm. And so what I did early on in the pandemic is I, after, you know, 15 years of not touching an instrument really very often, I built a a, a small music studio in my garage and outfitted it. And I, I'm obsessed with spending as much time in there, creating music as possible. Um, and it's, it's, it, is a, it is borderline a problem now because I, I won't sacrifice time with my family. I have a responsibility to my day job and, uh, I, and I do a lot of, of stuff around self-care and fitness. And so the only time that I can really have time to do that is when I normally wouldn't be sleeping. <laughs> but but I think this is like, you know, to your earlier the question, like it, it is such an obsession that like, mm-hmm. I'll go to my studio at, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night when I would normally be going to bed. And I'm thinking to myself, I'll be here for 35 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour at max. And then I'm going to go to sleep
2: mm-hmm. and
1: three or four hours will go by and I'll look at the clock and I'll be like, oh shit, I got to go to bed.
2: Mm-hmm. And then I go to bed.
1: I go to bed um, I'm, I, I, and I see it like it's this. This, this is the pattern that I, you would ask me about earlier, like the obsession that I have around spending time creating music. Um, I don't know if it's any good, but I love it. That's all that really matters is it, is pretty fun.
0: I think it's so cool, Amos. I feel like you are so multifaceted. I feel like you have so much um, so many interesting facts mm-hmm. about you. I feel like the more I would dive into conversation, more layers are peeling And so, wow, Amos is so cool. Um, but with that, you know, I am so 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 grateful, Amos. Thank you so much for coming on board today. Share your story, share your journey of being so authentic, so open, and let us, you know, you know, share the journey with all of us. So thank you so much. And also thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. Like, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. And I cannot wait to see you all next week. Remember, if not, not when, if not you, whom? See you guys. Bye.